I hope that you'll trust that we've been praying for you this morning, our, our church leadership, that you would hear God's word and that distractions would be minimized. Because I think what Jesus is going to say today about anger, it needs to be heard by all of us. And what, do you, what we're going to look at next week with regards to lust, you know, hurry, hurry back next week and invite a friend. Um, we need to listen as the church. And we need to ask for God's word to not just expose us to the kingdom of Jesus and expose our hearts, but to change us. That we be different. And citizens in, in his kingdom in a world of raging passions. So, before we read, let me enter into this. Uh, you have an outline in front of you. And the statement at the top of it says something like this. I don't know when I edited it, if I did. The reality of sinful anger in your and my heart must be addressed with repentant urgency with the gospel of Christ that we might live in the kingdom of Christ. That's what Jesus is going to clearly teach us today. Now, now I'm a passionate man. I have intensity. I don't need a lot of sleep, and I get up usually going rather quickly. I love to motivate. I really do love coaching kids in our community. I, I enjoy leadership. But that also means I can get very angry very quickly, and I don't hide that from you or others. But I'm also tired of anger. Maybe you can resonate with it. I'm tired of anger. Even anger that's not acted upon. Just having an inferno, a cauldron at times in one's life. We live in a world that is tired and angry, don't we? A friend in Pennsylvania, an elder that I used to spend time with, he would say to me, Jim, because I, I dealt with church planting stress and solo church pastoring stress. I didn't have a, the team of friends and ministry partners that we are blessed to have here at that time in my life. But he would say to me, Jim, I, I think you're getting hit by smoke from a different fire. When I would engage someone, I'd be like, why are they so upset? Okay, their community group wasn't great, but oh my gosh. They didn't spend enough time in word, didn't spend enough prayer, didn't, didn't have the right kind of food. Like, why do people care so much? And I found my anger meeting someone else's anger. And he'd say, Jim, I think you're getting hit by smoke from a different fire. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. We know passionate people who have raging fires burning in their life, don't we? And sometimes we get in the line of the smoke, we're downwind. We know people who lose it, whose temper causes others to tiptoe around them and avoid them. We know people who run over others and don't even see it. We also know people who run over others and do see it and don't care. Anger is a problem and problem anger is pervasive in our world. David Pallison wrote a book. It's a great book. I'll, I'm happy to let you borrow it. It's called Good and Angry. And his first chapter is titled, Angry People. He says this, In real life, anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip and it guns down classmates. It divides churches. I'm going to invite you to come to our conflict equip thing next Sunday morning in the next two weeks. 
I had somebody ask me, do we have a lot of conflict in our church? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think so, but if I were the enemy, and I've seen the enemy seek to do a work in and against the church, I don't believe that Christ's community is real close to falling off some cliff of doctrinal infidelity. And I don't think we're going to fall off the cliff of incredible progressive ideology, but I'll tell you what I, I would imagine could happen in a place like this is anger and sinful conflict will not be addressed biblically. And the prowling around enemy can destroy not just families, but churches, right? So let me continue the quote. Anger divides churches. It turns friendships into enmity. It erupts in road rage. It's the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. The fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. Anger is also the basic DNA of complaining and brooding, irritability. We all experience anger. If you've always been strong-willed, argumentative, and volatile, you know anger. Hi, I'm Jim. If you have a lifetime of disappointment and disillusionment that's left you embittered, you know anger. In the way we do anger, some of us explode, some of us simmer, some of us seem dormant, and some try to anesthetize themselves. That's in his first paragraphs of his book, Good and Angry. We need to listen to Jesus, and we need to ask God's Spirit help. So will you stand with me? Let's read... Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of, the, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Father, we need help in this. We pray that you would do a work to individually engage our hearts as relates what Jesus teaches in this text, in this Sermon on the Mount. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So last Lord's Day, we heard Jesus say this. He said that until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Then he says, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So that's reality in God's kingdom. Not one commandment is to be relaxed. And so then we see what he does next. He's going to go into six different antithetical statements, and he's going to start to tag particular commands in the law to be particular about the point he's just made by summary. And he starts with, you have heard it said in the law, you shall not murder. He starts with the command of murder. Now, why does he start with murder? I don't think we have to wonder too much about that. In the law, in Exodus chapter 20, murder is the first commandment about the communal reality among the people of God in God's theocracy. So think of the, the, the Ten Commandments. 
No other gods before me. You shall have no, make no carved image. Should not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Children, obey your parents. Right? That's about family government, that covenantal realm. And then starting in the sixth commandment, you begin to have these commands that are really communal in the sense of how anybody relates to anyone inside the kingdom and among the people of God. So murder, and next week is going to be adultery, which comes next. It should come first according to the table of the law. But I'm thankful because I think we need for it to come first as we consider that we live in a world of passionate feelings. Feelings, as we've talked in other sermons, and I won't duplicate what I've said there, but we live in a world where what people feel is the de definition of what is real. We know we live in a world where people have angry feelings of passion. And according to God's standard, people commit murder and are guilty of a sin as commensurate to murder all too frequently because of anger burning in the heart. Words that are harsh and foul. And yet, Jesus has made it clear from the beginning that his kingdom is so different from the kingdoms of this world and we're supposed to be so set apart, so different, so different in how we manage our passions. And so I'm thankful that he starts with this as we begin this uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, you've heard it said to those of old. I mentioned this last week, but this phrase would be how Jesus and others would reference the oral tradition that had been passed down among the rabbis. You have heard it said to those of old. This would be like Jesus saying to the crowd, you, you, you have heard and understood a common interpretation of the law. All right? And that thing you have heard is that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, what judgment are, are murderers liable to? Well, Numbers chapter 35, verse, verse 30 makes it clear in God's kingdom. It's, cap, it's capital punishment. One who takes a life will have their life taken. Justice. Well, what is murder? Well, even our own dictionary says it like this. Murder is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another with malice that is expressed or implied. That is murder. And for centuries, the scribes and the Pharisees had taught that to fully keep the sixth commandment was to not commit murder in the first degree. They said the same thing about the seventh commandment, which we'll look at next week. Just do not have sexual intercourse with someone who's not your spouse outside of marriage, before marriage. Don't do that. And you have fully kept the seventh commandment. And Jesus is going to counter that. Is that all that the law forbids when the law says do not murder? What about a person who tries to, who tries to kill another person? But lack of skill or circumstance prevents it from being fulfilled. What about that person? Or what about a person who wants to kill another, but in the eyes of the world is not a tough guy, is too weak, is a coward to pull the act off? What about, what about that person? And so Jesus goes on the challenge here. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old that if you behaviorally keep the base level of the law, then you have kept the intent of the law. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. It's amazing when he says, but I say. Just let's, 
sit for a moment on the authority of Jesus that's on display right here. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this. This is Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's Matthew's first description after this Sermon on the Mount. What kind of authority does he have? So when he says, but I say, he's not contrasting the law of God. He's not saying, I know the law says this, but I'm saying something different. He's saying what I say is equal to the weight and authority of God's law. The, the interpretive grid I'm about to give you is equal to the power and weight of what was given to God's people on the mountain with smoke and earthquakes and all the glory at Sinai. But I say something comparable to that. The standard of Jesus is gloriously holy. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, it's a series of essays on theology and ethics, but it's called God in the Dock. He said this, he said, the standard of permanent Christianity must be kept clear in our minds, and it is against that standard that we put to test all contemporary thought. Permanent Christianity C.S. Lewis called it. That's another way of saying that in Jesus' kingdom, the law and the prophets never go away. They're fulfilled by him, but they're also still given to his people for obedience in his kingdom. And where disobedience to that permanent law occurs, repentance is required for washing. And, and from the beginning of his kingdom, here's what I want you to understand with me. Jesus makes it clear that the standard of permanent Christianity is deeper than behavior. The standard of permanent Christianity is, is way higher, it's way holier than just keeping the base behavioral level of the law. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Maybe you note that he verbatim repeats the phrase liable to judgment that was used just before to describe the consequence of murder. Anger in the heart is as concerning to Jesus as premeditative shedding of blood. Anger in the heart is as consequentially and spiritually damning, unrepented anger in the heart, by the wrath of God as is murderous shedding of blood. That is the intent of the law. Let me, let me say it differently. Anyone who fails to care for their neighbor to the fullest degree in thought and in word to honor and sanctify their life that's given by God, their creator, has violated the sixth commandment and are just like one who is killed in the first degree. Anyone who doesn't honor their neighbor to the fullest degree and says harsh things and has heart full of unrepentant anger at times against another image bearer of God is as guilty in God's sight because his standard is so holy as one who commits murder in the first degree. Wow. I think of the Apostle Paul. I like the fact that much of the New Testament is Paul or Peter. They're both super passionate in different ways. Paul, think of this man before he was converted. This self-righteous, angry man. Paul was converted and then he references that he received glorious revelations 
Somewhere in the Arabian desert, he was with the resurrected Christ and he learned things from Christ. And in Galatians 1.12, he says, what I received was from God himself. So when I teach, it's not man's gospel, it's God's gospel. Paul says that. Well, think about Paul saying, I've heard God's gospel from God himself. And how does Paul start Romans? What is the first thing that we must grasp when we understand God's gospel? Is it not this, that all sin, even sin in the heart, even sinful desires not acted upon, makes us liable to the full judgment and wrath of God? And there is no one who's not liable. Not one, he says in Romans. Who did Paul learn that from? This Jesus whose kingdom teaching right there in the Sermon on the Mount is saying all hidden simmering desires and or public outbursts of angry sinful desires deserve the wrath of God. Is there any of us who can escape that? Anyone here who would remain unconvicted? No, it's not possible, but Jesus goes even further to make it clear. He said, whoever insults his brother... We'll be liable to the council. That's where judgment would be rendered. Anyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So to even give expressions of contempt. I mean, situationally derived. It's a spontaneous moment. I was frustrated and I spoke words of harshness. Maybe I had the courage to say it to somebody, but most likely I said it to someone next to me about somebody. What does it mean when he says, calls a person, you fool? Well, literally, it's you're stupid, you're nothing. But Psalm 14, verse 1 says, a fool is one who's exempt from God's care because there's nothing good in them. You're, you're, there's nothing good in you, is what I say to someone when I say you're a fool. The way that Jesus is meaning it here. So listen, Jesus says to speak foul or harsh to someone or in gossip about someone is to break the sixth commandment and to be liable to hell. It's not just people throwing temper tantrums on the ground who have such anger, they look at their parents and say, I hate you just because you won't give me what I want. It's not just that sort of a display. What about those who give calculated words about someone to someone else? who aren't courageous enough to go address a brother or a sister. Cowardly, calculatedly speaking to another person about someone else. We're guilty, aren't we? And we, we ought be made poor in spirit to go back to the first of the Beatitudes. We need to be washed. We need to repent. So honestly, Pause for a moment, and I want you to think about your words or your implied words to certain people or about certain people. Your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your employer, your neighbors, maybe people in your own church. What have you thought or said about them or to them that the holy standard of Scripture ought be exposing to you now? Are you guilty of sinful anger in thought or word that's a violation, commensurate to a violation of the sixth commandment? 
and that you fall far short of the standard of holiness in the kingdom of Jesus and you are liable to the judgment of God. And our passions, they boil, don't they? I mean, think about Paul writing the letter to 1 Corinthians. Hey, divisive church with people full of anger. <laughs> His whole letter is to a church of self-righteous individuals who are rampant in their sexual sin, divisive in how they communicate. They're argumentative and quarrelsome. And in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I wish I could talk to you like spiritual adults, but I can't. You're basically trying to either hide or you're having your temper tantrum on the ground. And you're the church of Jesus. You're the kingdom of God. Our passions can boil even secretly. And we can tend to say, well, I'm good because I didn't act on my passions. And I think what we are called to say when we hear Jesus teach is, no, I'm not good. I'm worthy of the wrath of a holy God. Think with me of Psalm chapter 90. Let me read to you from Psalm 90, verse 7. We are brought to an end, God, by your anger. For by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. So think with me what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, God, all of my secret junk is in front of you. But as I add up my life, I look back, I'm only 45. But if I look back, maybe I'm in my 70th or 80th year, some of you may be. You look back and you think, okay, it's been a series, a stack, a big pile of things God knows are secret, but also things I've seen. It's toilsome, moments of anger, friendships lost. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you, the psalmist asks. Do you know who wrote Psalm 90? It's one of the few psalms of Moses, not of David. Did Moses have God bring some serious consequences down on him because of his anger? Yeah, but God, I'm angry because they're idiots. They want to go back to Egypt. They do nothing but complain. Like You're letting us down. You're not keeping your promises. They think it was better back, back then. They hate me. And Moses hits a rock when God says, speak to it. And God says, you will not see the land of promise because you responded without faith and in anger. When Moses says, God, you see our secret sins, what is Moses probably thinking of? And yet Moses goes and he says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so we can rejoice and be glad all our days. So, so see, Moses... Or if with Moses we consider the pervading, pervasive power of angry sin in our hearts and, and we consider what Moses does, which he knows that wrath is deserved, what do we do? Like, what, what should we do? Jesus tells us in verse 23, go back to this Sermon on the Mount. He says, you need to do something, do it quickly and do it passionately. See, it's interesting when you or I, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give stereotypes here. I think there's one of two directions we go when we realize we've been angry. You can guess which one I am, but 
Let's just say there's two different categories. One category can immediately after the display of sinful anger, suddenly, shockingly to me, become disinterested in resolving it. Just going to run away from it. I'm not going to say that you're lazy, but just going to avoid, the conflict was bad enough. I'm just going to turn and uh, we all need to calm down. And then there's this errant thought that it'll all just die down. No, it won't won't die. Something will die. The conflict won't die. So I get there's reason to calm down. That's one stereotype, okay? An urgent nothingness. The other side that does something urgently, I can relate to, maybe you can too, is the person who immediately and urgently defends themselves and begins to self-justify. See, the original offense is one thing, but then the urgent response of dismissing my culpability and declaring my rightness starts to take over urgently. They deserved it. I was just defending myself. They started it. They haven't said sorry yet. That's what our flesh wants to urgently do. And Jesus says, no. You must do something urgently, but it's not ignore and it's not self-justify. What is it? Here's where he goes. Let me give you a summary. We must urgently admit, investigate, and engage. Sounds very unspiritual, but just track with me. Admit, investigate, and engage. Verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you sense the urgency? Immediately think, pray, meditate. Have I been angry? Have the sinful passions of my flesh harmed and been against another? Admit it. Investigate it in your soul. Think about it. Does anyone have anything against me? Have my words or my actions been sinful against another, maybe my avoidance. Admit it, investigate, and then go immediately to engage in humble repentance. Stop what you are doing and go. Do this urgently, Jesus says, before seeking to worship from your heart the God who knows your heart. I mean, is there anything more important to God than worship? What's the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're called to worship him. But here's the the other question is, is there anything more pressing than bringing something to God in worship? And he says, yes. Think with me of Saul in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul disobeyed God and he collected all the animals, took King Agag and didn't obey God when God told him to destroy the Amalekites. And Saul's response was, well, we were gonna have a worship service for you. And Samuel says to Saul, To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is worship from the heart of one who is Jesus as your king. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 12, 1? Your body, the way you live your life is a living sacrifice of, of praise. Obey Jesus the king and urgently admit, investigate, and engage those you've sinned against with repentant humility and make that a part of your worship of the God who knows your heart. Let's just stop right now and think. 
We're not going to stop, stop. I'm almost done. But stop and think. What are you doing right here? Why are you here? Why did you get up this morning and come to this particular place to be with these particular people? I would hope you would say, because we are made and redeemed to worship the God of our salvation and creation. To worship. That's why I'm here. I'm here to worship. Okay? You're at church. You're worshiping. You came to give sacrifices of praise to the God who's reconciled sinners to himself and diverted his anger against sin by placing it on his son. What urgent thought and feeling should you and I have then if we listen to Jesus' teaching on this day of worship? Should it not be, how have I broken the holy law of God and whom have I sinned against that I must go to? I don't think that means you need to get up right now. Maybe it does. But that's the urgent emotion we're called to have. That's the feels we're supposed to get in worship. My daughters went to a church not long ago and literally they were met with a, a greeting that said, if you came in feeling like a three, we're going we're gonna to worship so good, you're going to leave with a 10. They didn't go back, which I was happy to hear, but it's not just excitement that, that we're called to experience. You and I should be saying, do I feel deep enough that I would obey? Urgently. Jesus gives another example for urgency. And he basically says, starting in verse 25, that sinful anger has consequences. Go and urgently settle your offense with any accuser before you end up standing before a judge in a process of civil justice, which in this world could also be a process of civil injustice. And you end up being thrown in jail with no recourse. I think what Jesus is saying is you need to see that in this world, sin has relational, communal, and life consequences. Justice is required. I could preach a whole other message on Romans 13 related to this, that the state has a purpose to hold the sword to execute justice for sinners. But Jesus' point is don't sit on your hands. Reconcile urgently before you end up standing before an earthly judge. No wonder Paul says in, in Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. That doesn't mean chase the person who's upset with you around the house till they settle it with you. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Many have been defiled by Christians who have not dealt with the consequences of our anger. Many have been defiled. Many have been wounded and broken by angry Christians who use harsh words to them or about them, whose hearts have not been made soft and pliable by conviction with this sort of a standard of understanding of the consequence of angry sin. Now, I need to close up for time, but I want you to note with me, we'll do it this way, with some heavy applications. Do you notice a surprise in what Jesus says? I think there's a surprise here. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if your brother has, uh, if you're angry with your brother, go to them. After all the teaching on anger, he doesn't say, if you, so if you're angry with someone, go to them. 
I think the surprise is he says, so if your brother has something against you, go to them. Why does he say it that way? I think it's this. It's because, I'll use myself as an example. I don't get an accurate perception of my sin just by looking inside my heart to see if I sinned. My sin is too deceptive for me to take that approach. Angry people don't see much if they just look inside themselves to see if they've been angry because they will see themselves justifying their actions. Or they won't even see their actions. So what Jesus does here, he says, rather you will get a fair, much more accurate perception of your sin by looking at its effect on another. Angry people often have a wake of broken, cowering, run-over people laying behind them. They would just look in the rearview mirror and see who's laying there or wonder who's not in front of them anymore because they avoid you. I ask you as application, have you looked in the eyes those whom when you admit it, investigate yourself, have you looked in the eyes those that you think your simmering anger or your angry outburst has affected? Instead of looking in here, which we need the Spirit's help to do, look in their eyes if their eyes will even look at you. Your spouse, your children, old friends, maybe they aren't friends now, coworkers, employers, church community folk, Look for who looks at their feet instead of looking you in the eye. Any, any reflex you see in another when, fathers, any reflex in your kids when you're near? Okay. Oh, the reality of sinful anger in your and my heart that must be addressed with repentance, urgency, with the gospel of Christ. I want to close up, but what is the gospel? And let us lead it right into the Lord's Supper. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. If you hear this, and you're convicted by it, and you know you need to be washed, then you know that the gospel is powerful enough to change the heart of an angry sinner and it's powerful enough to convince you of this standard of God's holy law. You would not be open to this as truth, that anger in the heart is commensurate to first-degree murder. That's crazy. You wouldn't even be open to that standard if by God's Holy Spirit, your heart has not been made alive to believe the good news of the gospel, which is that somebody else took your damnation upon them for your small, small, fits of anger that are worthy of the judgment of God. And in the gospel, what did God ultimately do? He came down to earth in Jesus and he fully embodied only righteous anger, no sin at all, no passions of foul thought in Jesus God himself. And then what did God the Father do? 
He placed all our sinful passions on Jesus, all our sins, our anger and our rage, and as we'll see next week, our lust and every passion we have that is errant according to God's standard and his law. And Jesus bore it such that the scriptures say he became sin. Him who was merciful and kind had my anger on him and your hate on him and you try to avoid conflict, and he couldn't avoid the cost of your sin on him. And you're afraid to go confess something to another because of how they'll respond to you? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, all our sin was on him. He had to endure it. Him who was gentle bore your and my harshness. See, we have to consider substitutionary atonement when we are in a place hearing such convicting teaching. And isn't that one of the things that anger can lead us to? Where <laughs> I really wish I could substitute that moment and go back and redo it when I've had my anger burst out and hurt another person. But I can't go back. I can't, there's no substitute for that moment. It's done. I can't fix it. And yet in the core of the gospel, is it not that God substituted the cost of those moments and put them on another? And God then spent his perfect anger that Moses knew was worth, he was worthy of on Jesus our substitute. Jesus experienced a civil injustice. He was thrown into a place of capital punishment. Jesus experienced broken communion with God. And we who rest on him, we get to be the ones who live in a receptive posture of mercy where anger against us has been diverted. And the filth of my anger has been promised it will be cleansed. Do you believe in the gospel? If you don't believe in the gospel, this text begs the question, what are you going to do in a world of anger? Just get mad back? I, I plead with you to rest on the gospel of Jesus by faith today as we take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Nourish us now by means of this sacrament, Lord. Would we taste and see that you are good and that you've done what's required to rescue our angry, sinful hearts. I do pray for fruit of repentance. I pray that this week you would enable conversations to happen because of servants obeying this word from your, your son, our king. And our first moment now, we ask that you'd help us to admit it and cling to your merciful provision in Christ. In your name I pray, amen. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. This is not the table of Christ Community Church. It's the table of those who belong to Christ. And, and allow me to say one quick thing. This is God's gift to us, not our gift to God. If you're convicted that you have sinned and not hand, handled anger right, this isn't your gift at the altar. This is his gift of 
whose life was spent at the altar. You're giving of your money, you're lifting up your voice in song, those are your gifts, but this is his gift. If you repent and believe the gospel, even if you're convicted and know there's something you must do based on God's truth today, partake of the Lord's Supper in faith, in repentance, in trust. And then before you come back to give your gift at the altar and worship next Lord's Day, would you do what's required in obedience to Christ? Let me pray.